Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. And I pray that uh, as uh, we look at um, the root of poverty this morning, that you would help us to understand that um, we are no different than the people that we see as needing help. And uh, may we understand and come to appreciate the fact that, um, the, that the core of who you are is relationship and your desire for relationship with us and your desire for us to have whole relationship with one another. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. So uh, Christmas rolls around and um, like, are you familiar with those Christmas lights that they had? Um, I think they were out at the racetrack this year um, near Leduc there. So there was this big kind of display of, of Christmas lights that you could go look at. It was kind of like Candy Cane Lane except, you know, South Edmonton. And so we decided to take a group of people out there. And so Megan uh, was the person in charge of that. She gets a bus. She hauls a bunch of people from our church drop-in on 96th Street and says, who wants to go see the Christmas lights? And so everybody uh, hops in the bus. We fill the bus up and we begin to drive. And as the bus goes across um, the river, um, these are the words that we start to hear. There's a Tim's on the south side of the river. Uh, A Humpty's. I didn't know there was a Humpty's here. Man, that street looks like fun. Uh, They're referring to White Ave. What's those big buildings? I didn't know there was big buildings out here. That meant South Edmonton Common, which has been there for 20 years. The last comment was, I didn't realize that the city went this far south. See, when you've lived within a 10-block radius of Edmonton your whole life, or for the last 30 years, you don't understand how big the world is, much less your city is. You don't begin to see the lights and all the things that are going on outside of your desire just to find a meal that day or a safe place to sleep you don't begin to realize that there's so much more. How you define a problem will impact how you solve it. How you define a problem will impact how you solve it. Einstein says that um, we should spend 95% of our time defining problems and only 5% of our time solving it. So 95% of our time defining it, only 5% of our time solving it. How you define poverty will impact how you address it. If we define poverty as merely a lack of stuff, then more stuff is obviously the solution. And so if we just keep saying, if we just give more stuff, then eventually no one will be impoverished anymore. But then why do we have chronic poverty? Why are there chronic homeless people? Even in a place like Alberta where we lack no stuff, there has to be something deeper. There has to be something more. The World Health Organization surveyed actually people living in chronic poverty. And they said to them, how will you define poverty or how do you define poverty? And um, this is what they said. They said, we define poverty as shame, as powerlessness, as loneliness, as having no voice. To live in poverty is to have loss of hope. It's to be in constant fear. If we define poverty or tell the story of poverty as a lack of stuff, and we tell donors and volunteers and politicians 
and churches only that poverty is material things and a lack of material things, what is the answer to it? It's to give more stuff. And then who becomes the hero? The person who gives the stuff. But if we define poverty as the materially poor actually define it, what would the answer be? It wouldn't be more stuff. It would be to take away those feelings of isolation, of loneliness, of having no voice, of having no hope. So when we look at the scriptures, what does the scriptures have to say about this? So this is a, a very familiar Bible passage that I, wanna, I want to uh, read with you tonight or uh, this morning. Sorry, I used to preach on Sunday nights, so I don't anymore. And um, it's uh, Acts, 4, uh, chapter, Acts 4 and uh, verses 32 to 37. So I'm going to read that for you now. The group of followers all felt the same way about everything. None of them claimed their possessions were their own, and they shared everything they had with each other. In a powerful way, the apostles told everyone that the Lord Jesus was now alive. God greatly blessed his followers. God greatly blessed his followers, and no one went in need of anything. Everyone who owned land or houses would sell them and bring them money to the apostles. Then they would give the money to anyone who needed it. Joseph was one of the followers who had sold a piece of property and, bought the, and brought the money to the apostles. He was a Levite, and the apostles called him Barnabas which means one who encourages others. No one in that church would have been poor. No one. Because the strength of community, of relationship, ensured it would never happen. Now, we read it as a group of people sharing their stuff. But the question is, why would the stuff be shared? And what was at the heart of all of this? So my thesis for you today, my thing that I want you to grasp is the root of all poverty isn't a lack of stuff, but the root of all poverty is actually broken relationship. It is in essence the breakdown of community, whether that community breakdown is macro or micro. So we've seen this on a global scale. When Syrian refugees needed to come here, um, they were being, like, they were in a bad spot. It was a war torn country. A lot of them were being um, physically abused, um, sexually abused, emotionally abused, and the whole country was falling apart. And so refugees needed to leave where they were going to come to a safe place like Canada because relationship had broken down in Syria to the point that they were in serious crisis. If relationship in Syria had been whole, there's no Syrian refugees. And so we can look at that at a macro scale, okay, we sort of get that. But what does it look like on a micro scale? One of our staff um, got to know a homeless person pretty well. And uh, she was in relationship with him. And she said to him one Sunday, why don't you come to church with me? And he said, I can never go to church with you. And she said, why? You said you wanted to go to church. Why don't you come to my church? And he looked at her and he said, every day I smell like pee. And the reason why homeless people, by the way, smell like pee is because they don't have a washroom to go to. Um, if you own a business, the chances are you're not going to let that homeless person come in and use your washroom because you don't want them in there and they're not purchasing anything. And if they use a, uh, um, the outdoors for their washroom, they get a fine, which they can't afford to pay, and then they get enough fines, they really can't afford to pay it, so they get thrown in jail. And so they're better off 
just to urinate on themselves than they are to do anything else. That's why they smell like pee. And so she said, I know you smell like pee, but you're my friend and I want you to come to church. And he said, but who would sit beside me? Everyone will want to stay away from me. Everyone will avoid me. Everyone will look at me like I'm weird. I, I, I can't go to church with you. I won't be accepted there. And she said, you know what? You're right. How about I start a church service for you and some of your friends or a Bible study or something to provide you a place where you will feel like you belong. So that's what she did. We all have broken community and we all find ourselves with something in common with the poor when we begin to understand that the reason why they're poor is because community has been broken for them. And if we see that the root of poverty is broken relationships, something else occurs. The poverty of broken relationship can only be restored through reconciliation. And we begin to see the poor is not someone that just needs our help, but someone that needs to enter into community, that needs to find reconciliation, that needs to become whole. Not that they just need more stuff, and sometimes you just need more stuff, but ultimately, the way that anyone is restored is through relationship and through community. And we realize that this isn't about them. This is about us. And what are we going to do as an us community? In, uh, in Canada, North America, um, you know, when someone says to us, hey, they, you got a problem? And, uh, and you go and you tell the problem, and you say, like, look, this is not really going well in my life, whatever that is. Our response is usually the same. I hope it goes okay. Um, I'm praying it goes okay. Um, you know, we, we use language that puts on, on, a, on a hope outcome. That, you know what, we're, we're going to pray for you and it'll all be okay. Or we're going to, you know, promise you that it'll be okay. In the Philippines, they actually say the word alicanum. I hope nobody here speaks Filipino because I said it wrong. Um, but that's what, it's, that's what they say to each other. And so I asked my Filipino buddy, I said, what does that mean? Because you guys say this to each other all the time when someone's in pain or someone's in trouble or someone is grieving. And I said, does it mean like the same thing it means here when someone's in trouble? He said, it'll all be okay. He said, oh, no, 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 no. He, he says, it means come with me. Come with me. He said, some people interpret it actually as God will be with you. Not meaning God will be with you so the outcome will be what you desire, but God will be with you in the moment of your pain. When's the last time we looked at a homeless person and thought to them, instead of me giving you something, come with me. Be with me. For this moment, I will be your friend. When it comes to the poor, I think the problem is so many of us want to be the hero or the savior. Um, Helping people affected by poverty begins with recognizing our own poverty and realizing what role is in the life of the other person. When we come alongside as equals, instead of looking down on someone because they lack stuff, but truly come alongside them as equals, we begin to understand who they are. When we come to them and approach them like someone who needs our help, 
and that we've got it all together and we don't. We strip the dignity that they may have. And we actually not only end up harming them, but we harm ourselves. We begin to say that your loneliness and your isolation and your loss of hope is justified because you have no hope of becoming anything without me. Instead, when we truly come alongside someone, not for the purpose of fixing them, and even if we give them stuff, but just for the purpose of being in relationship with them, something changes. There's no hero if material wealth can't solve the problem. There's just no hero. It means entering into relationship with someone to truly see transformation happen. It means that we're not settling on a transaction of me giving them what they need and them saying thank you very much and walking on their way. It means that at some point we're saying in our best Filipino accent, come with me. Come with me. Notice this in Barnabas in verses 36 and 37. Again, Joseph, or Barnabas, was one of the followers who had sold a piece of property and brought the money to the apostles. So Joseph's name gets changed to Barnabas. Um, his, his birth name is actually Joseph. And he's renamed Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. He sells land to give to the church. And he says, here's my, here's my land, here's the money from this, and I'm giving it to all of you because all of us should share in this together. Now, this isn't merely a donation for a tax receipt. It's an act of servanthood because he's laying it at the apostles' feet. It's generosity that's about community. It's not a donation. It's a commitment to love. What does a commitment to love look like to the person who smells like pee that walks into your church one day? And by the way, they're going to if they haven't already. The community that you are now a part of has the biggest gap between needs and resources in the city. Um, Beverly, Abbotsfield, that area right over there. There's homeless people that are sleeping four blocks away from here in the River Valley. I'm not saying this because I think it's true. I'm saying this because we researched it as an organization to find out where are the most underserved people in the city. And you're on the edge of it. So what happens when that person walks in and they smell? There's a little bit of puke on their shirt. And they're either coming off a high or they've already started drinking and it's 10.30 in the morning. Not only will you invite them in, but will you sit with them? Will you treat them like your brother or your sister? Will you show them dignity in the moment? Will there be love, not pity in your eyes? We run a program called the Open Door Program, and it's, uh, it's cool. And so it helps people who are transitioning out of prison um, to come into society in a way that's healthy. So if you uh, come out of prison and you have no place to live, uh, no place to work, and no relationships, do you know what you do? You reoffend. But if you come out of prison and you have community and you have a job and you have a place to live, uh, you end up becoming a productive member of society. 
It's sort of the way it works. So through our two chaplains, we have one who works uh, the men's prison and one who works the women's prisons. Uh, we help people reintegrate into society so that they become whole and they don't reoffend. So one of the ladies coming out of this, um, I was uh, at a banquet kind of celebrating everything they're doing and this one lady gets up there to talk and she, um, she told her story of being in prison for 10 years. So if you've been in prison for 10 years uh, in Canada, uh, what you've done is not so good. That's a long time. On her day release, um, she had, uh, you know, she really took advantage of that on her day release and um, she, uh, she got pregnant out one day in the middle of her sentence and she got pregnant. So she ends up having a kid in prison. Um, kid is born. In the meantime, because um, she wasn't with her child afterwards, she ends up uh, going into the hole for a long time because she got addicted to drugs and she's in a really bad place at this time. Like just, it's dark. And her release is supposed to be in three years. She says, at the end of that time, about six months before her release, she ends up meeting our prison chaplain, Debbie, and becomes friends with Debbie and uh, begins coming out of her addiction. So she tells this story of complete loneliness in prison, of her becoming re-addicted in prison, of her um, having a child born in jail that then is taken from her. I mean, this is, this is a sad story. And then she, she drives home how bad it was when she says, I moved here from Manitoba, got thrown in jail, like within a few months of me being in Edmonton. And because of that, um, my family wasn't around me. So she said, for 10 years, I had nobody visit me in prison. Not one person. So then she says, now I've been out for six months. And she says, you know, I'm living, I got Debbie, I'm figuring out this God thing. Through Debbie, I've got a mentor and I've got a group of friends. I am um, doing, you know, pretty well. I have a job, someone hired me. I'm living with my son. She said, and I realized something. She said, I'm a blessed woman. I'm a blessed woman. Now, most of us wouldn't look at her and say, you're blessed. But in her mind, she was very blessed. Jesus was materially poor. Yet until the end, he was absolutely rich in relationships. The early church became love and responsibility to one another. They were not motivated to do what they did out of obligation or guilt or legislation, but out of genuinely loving and belonging together. Genuinely doing so. In verses 33 and 34, um, we read, In a powerful way the apostles told everyone that the Lord Jesus was now alive. God greatly blessed his followers, and no one went in need of anything. No one went in need of anything. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them there was no needy person among them. Now think about that. The Holy Spirit filled them up so much that they were motivated in a sense of love and belonging to make sure everyone was cared for. So when we think of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we tend to think about that what that does for ourselves. 
You know, we, and we talk that language, right? I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore I've got these spiritual gifts, and isn't it awesome? Or I'm expressing it in this kind of charismatic way, isn't that cool? But yet, in this case, the power of God came upon them so much that they were compelled to look after community around them. When we read in Luke 4 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus, we hear, okay, we read, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus, and he says two, and the first two after that is to preach the gospel. Got it. But you know what everything else is after that? Clothe the naked. Feed the hungry. Visit the person in prison. It's all this external kind of acts of service. Again, Jesus was materially poor. He says it. I got nowhere to sleep at night. But so rich in relationship. The early church made sure nobody was uncared for. No one. When Paul writes our bodies are temples of God, that doesn't mean your own. It means everyone's. It, does, it matters how you treat yourself, but it also matters how you treat those that are external from yourself. Consider that for a moment. We read about the body being the temple of God and we think, okay, what does that mean for me? Do we go into the homeless shelter and say, but what does it mean for them? And how they are loved? We have this uh, center called PAC. Um, it's a clothing drop-off and so people drop us off stuff and then we give it to those who are in need. Because sometimes, you know what, you just need stuff. And you should see the things that people drop off to us. And the mentality around it is, I mean, we all know what it is. It's like, well, they've got nothing, so they'll at least want this. No, they don't want that. And more importantly, I'm not going to give that to them. They, they don't deserve the thing that you won't wear. Now, if you put on a couple extra pounds, or maybe you lost a couple extra pounds and the shirt doesn't fit anymore, and that's why you want to give it away, that's cool. But, you know, after you've changed your car's oil 15 times in it and there's grease stains all over it and you've painted the fence and you go, well, this T-shirt I can't wear anymore, but somebody will want it. The message you send is that their body is not a temple of God, that it's not worthy of decent clothes. Churches talk about community, but frequently we're part of the problem too. And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread as only a guest speaker can tread. <laughs> Certain things I can say, because then Rob will just never have me back and he'll kick me out of his little accountability group. Um, it's all good. So um, homelessness across our nation. The fastest growing group of homeless in our nation is homeless youth. Homeless youth. The fastest growing part of homeless youth is those that come out of the LGBTQ2QS community. Think about that, okay? Fastest growing is youth. Next subset of that is those coming out of the gay community. The, most of those kids that are youth, that are gay, come from deeply religious homes. Now, that doesn't just mean Christian homes. I need to be clear on that. It just means deeply religious homes. So when I say the church is part of the problem, this is what I'm talking about. Because that kid, for one reason or another, is feeling like they're getting rejected, 
or is feeling like they will be rejected. And when kids end up, when youth end up in homeless shelters in our city, they will be involved in gangs in under two weeks. And if they're involved in gangs, they're either dealing drugs or they're involved in prostitution. This is the way it is. And this isn't a theological statement on that issue, but it is a theological statement on shouldn't the church be a place of belonging for everyone? It isn't just the homeless person that smells like pee. It's the youth who's trying to figure out their sexual identity too. The fruit of how we have dealt with that issue as a church is really, really obvious to me. Um, the fruit of how we have dealt with that issue is people that are homeless, people that hate the church, and the third one is even more devastating. It's suicide. It's the amount of youth and adults that have taken their life because the one safe place they should have had, their family and their church has rejected them. We haven't been a place of community and loving. And we need to change that. And again, it's not about our theology. It's about our theology of community and how we do that well. Um, John Orberg uh, says this. I think you actually got that in your PowerPoint. I know I'm probably not the easiest dude to follow here. There you go. If you want to do the work of God, pay attention to people. Notice them, especially the people nobody else notices. If we're in the business of noticing people, who are the people that nobody else notices? Are we loving them? Are we bringing them in? Are we caring for them? So why don't we solve this problem? And I think there's a few answers as to why we don't solve this problem. Um, we lack the will and we lack the heart to actually dive deep into relationship with people. We want someone else to take care of our citizens because we aren't prepared to see anyone as our neighbors, um, but only kind of to see these people as our homeless. Um, because we believe that help should lead to conversion uh, and we get to be the ones that divide, decide what conversion is. We fail to recognize our poverty, our own broken relationships. We fear, fear entering into relationship with someone so seemingly different. I mean, it's hard. And don't get me wrong, it's hard. It's really hard to enter into relationship with someone so easy, so different than us. And let's face it, it's easier to give some money or drop off bags of extra stuff um, it's easier to show up at Christmas time when we feel like we really should make a difference and maybe somebody's cold, not realizing they're hungry in July too. We uh, actually uh, jokingly have talked about that at Christmas we should um, start a fundraising program called Hug a Hobo um, and uh, because there's this, there's this just this, people just want to be around someone that has less and do something for them so they feel better about themselves. We're like, we should charge them money for it, you know? He's really, you know, if the individual's really cleaned up and looking good, 50 bucks. You know, if they're uh, strung out and high and they've got a little bit of puke on them, that'll be 200 bucks. You know, charge more because you'll, you'll feel better about yourself the worse off they are. That's sort of a little bit of dark humor in the inner city. Um, <laughs> we wonder if we serve those that are impoverished and homeless, 
does that actually make our church grow? Because if it doesn't, maybe we shouldn't be interested in that. It's easier to be compassionate, let's face it, than to fight for justice. It's easier to serve a meal than to eat with someone. We've seen this on Wednesday nights now at our church building where we serve. Uh, now it's up to 350 people a night. Uh, when I started two and a half years ago, it was 250 people a night. Uh, we, on Wednesday nights now, we serve family-style dinners. So we put, the food, you know, we put the meal in the middle of the table. Everybody sits in a circle, and uh, we ask that volunteers and staff sit with those that are receiving the meal and not just be there, but actually eat with them and converse with them. And when you're in a round table, you know, and man, we had some people initially kind of freak out. Can we just stand behind the counter and kind of slop the mashed potatoes on and maybe, maybe not look someone in the eye? And we're like, well, you can. But what does that do for the individual that just needs someone to talk to them like they're a human being? It's easier to serve a meal than to eat with someone. It's easier to be in relationship with someone we understand. But yet our most vulnerable are people, not just to help, but are people that need our love. And when we decide that if they're just people that just need help, they can get help somewhere else. But if we recognize the fact that we are to enter into relationship with them, well, then that changes everything. At the seed, we're programming around dignity and relationship first and foremost. One of the programs that we have is uh, feet washing. So imagine if you're on your feet all day and you have no laundry services, what your feet look like after a couple months. So we have nurses come in and actually clean the feet of those individuals. Sometimes they're scraping out fungus. It is the grossest thing you've ever seen. And yet these nurses who do this, do this with such compassion and dignity and love in their eyes. It's incredible. Our desire at the mustard seed is to end charity and to enter into solidarity with people. It's not that relief or basic services aren't needed and important, because sometimes if you're hungry, you just need a meal. But it means that if we're going to move people out of poverty into a life of wholeness and wellness, there has to be something more. And that more is not just doing something for someone, it's doing something with them. A lady by the name of Stephanie entered into our midst a couple of months ago, uh, about four months ago. Um, she had nothing. Bad criminal record. Um, no place to go, nothing. We helped her with housing. She couldn't get a job, so we started a painting company and made her our first employee. Um, we um, helped her as best we can enter into relationships and to find mentorship and all that kind of stuff. And she's doing quite well now. And the other day, um, I'm walking through, and she's there, and she said, Dean, I'm so excited. And I said, why? And I've, like, I've seen Stephanie pretty happy. I've not seen her like kind of this elevated. And I said, what's, what's up? Like, why are you doing so good? And she said, the most amazing thing happened to me today. And I said, what's that? She said, well, in September, I'm going to Bible school. She said, 12 years ago, I was an addict. I was violent. I was involved in all shades of criminal activity. And she said, and now I have a place to live I have a job, I have people that love me, and I get to go to Bible school. And I said, good for you, Stephanie. And she pointed to the sky and she said, no, good for God for looking after me. And he said, oh, and the must she too. <laughs> Her
Her birthday was last week, 50th. So we threw her a little party. She walks in the room, she sees the balloon, she sees the cake, she starts to cry. And we're like, you all right? She said, yeah. She said, it's just that I'm 50 years old and this is the first time anyone's ever had a birthday cake for me. All relationships in her life have been broken. And now she's starting to heal with her, with her uh, sons as well. It's really neat to see. Okay, I'm going to end with this because I think I'm pushing my time limit here. Um, there's, um, there's a story that um, we've been told, uh, I, I've been told a number of times, and, and I continue to tell it because I think it drives, drives home um, this point. There's um, a housing unit that we have in Calgary. We're, uh, we're Team Alberta, um, soon to be Team Alberta NBC with the mustard seed. And um, we have a large building there called the 1010. So it's a, it's a housing unit um, that's 12 stories high. So we had this uh, individual that we had moved into this place. And this isn't actually it, but close enough. And, um, oh, sorry, this isn't here. You're not looking at the same screen as me. And so the um, guy moves in put him on the sixth floor, and he's uh, um, seemingly doing okay. I haven't seen or much or heard from him for about, you know, a month or two. Not a big deal. Um, by the way, for the first uh, few weeks, he actually slept on his balcony because when you're homeless, um, sleeping inside is weird. And so you actually sleep on your balcony for the first little bit, uh, even when you find a place. So he sleeps on the balcony. Eventually, uh, we move him into, he moves in or decides to sleep in his unit, sleeps in his unit, and then one day, um, all of his bedding comes over the balcony and nearly hits the property manager. So the property manager goes up there, knocks on his door and says, hey, you can't throw stuff off the balcony, you know, it's kind of a rule here, yada, 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 guy goes, okay, I got it, not a big deal. Month later, mattress comes off the balcony. Nearly hits the property manager and a couple of other individuals. So at this point, we have a problem. And it's how do you solve the problem of someone who's throwing stuff off the balcony? And um, what, do we, what do we do with this? And so uh, we had the discussion that you normally would have. What are we going to do with this? Any ideas what the solutions were? Guys on the sixth floor, what do you think the first solution was? Put them on the first floor. Uh, any other ideas what we thought about doing? Yeah, kicking him out. Yeah, screen it up, get rid of his balcony. That's an option. Kick him out, right? Um, there's lots of options here. So then we decided to do the smartest thing ever. We wouldn't actually ask the dude, why do you keep throwing things off your balcony? And so we go upstairs, and property manager knocks on the door, ding, 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 ding. Guy opens the door, and he says, why do you keep throwing things off your balcony? And the guy looks at him, a little bit of a pause, and says two words, you came. The only time he had someone visit him in the three months that he had already lived there was the first time when he threw his bedding off of his balcony, the second time when someone threw a mattress. So at that point, we're like, oh, well, this is an easy thing to solve. We got two volunteers to spend an hour with him each and every week. See, although he was homeless, he actually had lots of community. We move him in, we give him no community. We gave him a house, we didn't give him a home. And so those two volunteers slowly moved from doing something for him, visiting him, to doing something with him because they ended up loving him and becoming his friend. And he was a friend to them. Stuff does matter. I mean, if you're hungry, you need to eat. 
If you have no shoes, you need some shoes. But what really makes a difference, what really makes a difference is when we decide that we'll enter into relationship with someone. And when we enter into relationship with someone, I think we're doing the most Jesus-like thing that we could possibly do. And we're best reflecting the church in its purity as it's supposed to be reflected. One last quote, and I'll close in prayer. Um, and, I, and I do have that one, I believe. I don't believe in charity. I believe in solidarity. Charity is so vertical, it goes from top to bottom. Solidarity is horizontal. It respects the other person. I have a lot to learn from other people. The Bible actually says it this way in Micah 6.8. He has told you what he wants, and this is all that it is. To be fair, just, merciful, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Um, Father in heaven, um, it's amazing to me that complex problems like homelessness, and looking after the poor is, has such a simple solution as outlined um, by you um, in Scripture. And so if we as a community, as people that, that, that walk in the light that you have provided for us, would only do that, um, I wonder what the world would look like. And so I pray that this church, in its way, um, would begin to understand that the root of all poverty is broken relationship. And that when broken relationships are restored and made whole, and that when we walk in relationship with people, that um, transformation truly happens. And that we would do that in a way that doesn't reflect pity, but reflects the things that you, Jesus, did. Um, treats everyone with dignity, compassion, love, and justice. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.